Kia ora. Where do you store random objects of potential practicality? The batteries, plasters and paper clips you accumulate in life. This podcast is pretty much that place. You have opened the audio drawer. Here we're hoarding recordings for New Zealand Baptists. Because one day... This episode could be just the thing. Tim Cooper, Professor of Church History at the University of Otago and previous leader at Dunedin City Baptist Church, shares with us someone he knows well, 17th century church leader Richard Baxter. Leaders today can learn much from Richard who warns us to watch over ourselves. This is Richard Baxter, the Reformed Pastor for the 21st Century, a recording of Tim's keynote from the Baptist National Hui 2019, Kia Tupu Whakaritorito, Positioning Ourselves to Thrive. Kia ora koutou katoa. Good morning. Uh, warm Pacific greetings from Dunedin City Baptist Church, from which I come, uh, from the University of Otago, at which I teach, uh, and from myself. Uh, I want to take you back to late in 1994, and uh, yesterday afternoon it occurred to me that that's 25 years ago. I can hardly believe that I'm that old, but I am. And I'd finished my honours year doing history and I wanted to carry on studying history because I loved it so much and uh, I was thinking about a topic for a PhD and I thought, well, I liked the Protestant Reformation when I was at high school, so I went to see the lecturer who might supervise that. His name was Glenn Burgess. And Glenn and I, we uh, had a wee chat about the possibilities and I still distinctly remember him sitting at his desk and just turning off to look at the bookshelves to the right and on, on one of those shelves was nine reels of microfilm. Now, I don't know if you can remember what microfilm is, right? So, so reels of film with those tiny images that when they were magnified on a screen became pages of text. And, uh, and these were the unpublished private papers and letters and manuscripts of Richard Baxter. So he points to those microfilm reels and he says, well, what about Richard Baxter? well, I don't have a clue who Richard Baxter is. So I, I go off and I read what's called the Dictionary of National Biography, and it has an entry on famous figures in English history, and there's Richard Baxter. I read his entry and I say, well, why not? I have, n- I have no idea what I'm taking on. I mean, the nine microfilm reels might have been a clue if I'd been paying attention. <laughs> but the choice of Richard Baxter was brilliant, a brilliant choice for which I can take absolutely no credit. But I tell you that story for another reason, because Glenn had another PhD student who was well through his PhD by that point. I think he was about six months from finishing his thesis, and his name was Martin Sutherland. So, I mean, it it is an honor and a privilege to be invited to present the Sutherland Lecture at the, at the Hui. But it's a special honour and privilege for me, having followed a little in Martin's footsteps and having observed him over 25 years, having seen his gracious demeanour, having seen his calibre as a scholar, and having seen his influence on, on the scholarship of New Zealand church history. And uh, I want to pay tribute to Martin 
and, and I hope that what I have to offer this morning is a worthy tribute and helpful, uh, of course, to you. So who was Richard Baxter? Richard Baxter was a 17th century English Puritan. So let me just sort of test the knowledge in the room. If you were at a party and someone asked you to explain what a Puritan was, which I admit is unlikely, Well, it's never happened to me. (laughs) Who would be able to give one or two sentences of an answer? Okay, that's cool. That's quite all right. Uh, So the Puritans were, well, they, 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 they took the Protestant Reformation seriously. They felt that the Church of England had been reformed to a degree, but not not fully not perfectly reformed, and so they wanted to purify the church even further, hence the label of Puritan. Now, no one likes to be called a Puritan then and now, so it's a label of abuse. But if you want to think about our own tradition, you might think that uh, evangelicalism is a product of the 18th century, but if you were looking for the roots of evangelicalism in the 17th century, you'd look to the Puritans. So they, you could think of them as the, the 17th century equivalent of the evangelicals. All right, that's, who, that's who the Puritans were. Richard Baxter. Let me try this one. Who's heard of Richard Baxter? Oh, a few. That's good. That's good. Uh, so Richard Baxter was, in his own day, um, a, well, a very well-known and, and influential figure. He was an author, for a start. He published during his lifetime 140 books. Some of them extremely long. (laughs) He never shut up. Uh, You know, so there's the published books, and then there's those microforms. You see see the scale of what we're dealing with. So I'm going to spend my life with Richard Baxter, and I still won't get to the end of him. Uh, Amazing, amazing man, Uh, amazing. Anyway, uh, so he's an author, but he's also a pastor. He was a pastor in the parish of Kidderminster. So uh, you see in the map of England, there's Kidderminster right in the middle of nowhere. I, I was going to offer up a New Zealand town that might be an equivalent, but... Inevitably, I would offend someone in the room. <clears throat> so I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> and where are you from? Oh, you're from the West Midlands. Your family are. Very good. So you're from Kidderminster Territory, Worcestershire. Right? So in the middle of... In the back blocks, right? But, but from the back blocks, Richard Baxter gains prominence and influence as a pastor. Because during the 1650s, he reformed the parish of Kidderminster. So just to give give you the briefest of historical context, in the 1640s, England went through a civil war. In 1649, they executed their king, Charles I, and for 11 years, England was a republic. It was the age of Oliver Cromwell. And you might have heard of Oliver Cromwell, right? During the 1640s, the Church of England was disestablished. The bishops were gone. 
The structure was gone. The prayer book, in theory, but not in practice, was gone. The trouble is that when Parliament, various parliaments, tried to put something else in its place, they never quite succeeded. And so we have a situation in the 1650s of what one book earlier this year called The Brave New World of Ecclesial Deregulation. So Baxter, Baxter is a pastor in the parish of Kidderminster in the back blocks, and he didn't like the regicide. He does not like Oliver Cromwell. But he comes to realize that there's real potential to do good work in his parish because there's this freedom to build a church from the ground up. And that's what he does. So uh, he transforms his parish. They had to add five galleries to his church to accommodate the growth in numbers and attendance during that decade. This is what he says, <clears throat> looking back when he wrote his uh, autobiography. He said, in a word, when I came there first, there was about one family in a street that worshipped God and called on his name. And when I came away, there were some streets where there was not past one family in the side of a street that did not, by professing serious godliness, give us hopes of their sincerity. Right. So Kidderminster in Worcestershire in the Midlands is not promising territory. It's, it's royalist territory. It is not, it is decidedly not, Puritan territory. And so he describes the scene at the start of his ministry in the 1640s, hard to find godly families. When he leaves in 1660, hard to find families that are not Christian. So the parish has been transformed. So what transformed it? Well, there, there was a secret to his success. So he says at one point in the book I'm about to tell you about, I find that we never took the rightest course to demolish the kingdom of darkness until now. He's, he's discovered something. He's latched on to something. He's realized something. He's tried it. He's put it into practice. It works. And so he says this, a bold claim. Until now, we haven't been able to dismantle the kingdom of darkness until now. But now we can. And now we are. And there's a secret to that that I will go on and tell you. So, uh, wait with bated breath. <laughs> so in 1656, he published a book called The Reformed Pastor. Actually, it's called, what is it, Gildas Salvianus, named after two early figures in English church history who had stern words for the English church. And Richard himself will have stern words for his fellow ministers. So the Reformed Pastor, it's a series of lectures that he was to offer to the Worcestershire Association. So you might think of that as like the local minister's fraternal, right? But in the 1650s, it's an innovation of Baxter's. So the, the ministers in Worcestershire gather together on a monthly basis to help each other out, encourage each other, deal with difficult church cases, talk theology. And in 1653, they had published a, a, a public agreement called Christian Concord that they would put into practice this, this secret of Baxter's success, which is coming soon. 
And so in 1656, they gather together for a hui. And Baxter is going to present these lectures. Turns out, he's very unwell for the course of his life. He couldn't go. So he, he'd written them, and he published them in the Reformed Pastor. 160,000 words long. Can you see the problem? So the project I'm working on at the moment is to produce an abridgment of the Reformed Pastor. I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, I want to get it down to around 30,000 words because I think that that would be valuable in Bible colleges and seminaries because this is a classic text. This is a classic text on what it is to be a pastor. So what I want to do today, in effect, is to say, what would Richard say? right? If, if, if he were here... If, if I could bring him back from the 17th century, what would he say to you? And, and now, this, the times, as I'm about to explain, are very different. But th there's something similar, 1656 hui of theirs. They're, they're in uh, very precarious, uncertain times. The church faces enormous challenges. And they are thinking, in, in our context, how do we do our work well? I'm going to give you Baxter from the 17th century, from the Reformed pastor. Now, what you will notice is that it's not what you might expect. Because, you know, if I were to, if I were to give, speak to you today, I, I would say something like this, because I, before I moved to teach at the University of Otago, I was in pastoral ministry in an open brethren assembly in the Hutt Valley for four years. And I learned just how difficult a job church leadership is, right? You just, you just don't know how hard it is until you're in it. You don't know the wounds. You don't know the difficulties. You, it, there's nothing like it. So, you know, if it were me to speak to you today, I would encourage you. I would say it's difficult. It's challenging. You have any number of hardships. Keep going. Take care of yourselves. Well, that's not quite what Richard says, <laughs> And one of the interesting things about uh, the research that I do is that I move from the, the Christianity around me to the Christianity of 17th century Puritans, and I notice the differences. That, there, there's certainly similarities and continuities, absolutely, but boy, there are some different emphases. And they, they will come out this morning, and we're going to reflect on those. Okay, so does that sound all right? We're gonna, you're going to hear Richard Baxter this morning. Right, so what, what would he say? Well, I can tell you that he would give you this verse because he spends the first two, three chapters of the Reformed Pastor, the long chapters, everything's long about Richard Baxter, uh, working with this verse, from Acts 20:28, 20, it's Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, "Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood 
of his own son. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. If Richard Baxter were here today, that is what he would say. So how does he say it? First of all, keep watch over yourselves. Right, so his, his fundamental point is, if you are thinking ahead, as you are, about the health of the church and the effectiveness of the church, you need to start with yourselves. Watch over yourselves. Now, he didn't put it like this, but I could paraphrase for, you know, 21st century New Zealand, Aotearoa, English. It starts with leadership, and it starts with leaders. Keep watch over yourselves. So he says four things. He says, keep watch, lest you should be void of that saving grace of God which you offer to others, and be strangers to the effectual workings of that gospel which you preach. In other words, make sure that you're in the kingdom. Now, these days, church leadership is so difficult, it's hard to to imagine anyone who would want to, you know, lead a church, unless they really believe this stuff. Of course, in the 17th century, you know, it, it, it was a state job. You were sort of maintained by the state to do so. Two, that you be not unfit for the great employments that you have undertaken. In other words, you've got a big job. Make sure you're fit for it. Lest you live in those actual sins which you preach against in others, and lest you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. In other words, in your preaching and in your ministry, you preach against sin to those in your congregations. Do not live in that sin. Unless your example contradict your doctrine, unless you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of your ruin, their ruin. Right? So make sure that your life matches your preaching because people are far more persuaded by your life than your preaching. Can you see the tone of what he's saying? It's kind, of, it's kind of different. And what's really different, uh, and I, I just love this. Uh, oh, goodness me, I've lost my progressions. I, I don't want to give you that just yet. On the title page, right, there's, there's this, this verse from Luke 12. And it's in Greek. It's not unusual in the 17th century to have a verse on the title page in Greek. Uh, it's, it's Luke 12:47, right? What do you think it says? If, if, you were to, if you were to write a book for pastors, what verse would you put on the front? Luke twelve forty seven. That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. Can you imagine anyone today publishing a book for pastors and putting that on the title page? And yet Baxter puts it on the cover. Let, let, me, let me take a risk, because I'm going to offer you a generalization, and historians instinctively dislike generalizations. I'm going to just put aside that instinct for a moment. I'm also going to be provocative. 
If there's, well, there's two differences that I notice in particular that are relevant this morning between our Christianity and theirs. Today, I think, to generalize, in contemporary Western Christianity, God is above all a God of love who supplies miracles on a weekly basis. As I think you're beginning to tell from the 17th century Puritans would say that above all, God is a God of holiness. God is a God who will judge. God is a God who is concerned with sin in his children and in his leaders. Now, I'm not saying one is more right or wrong than the other because, in fact, I think both can be critiqued. And I would critique Baxter and the Puritans on their view, just as I would critique some forms of prevalent contemporary Western Christianity. But, but you're seeing a difference in Baxter, right? He's, he's, there's this concern with sin. <clears throat> and so I want to read, I'm just going to read you a couple of long paragraphs from the Reformed pastor, because I, I want you to hear his voice. This is Richard Baxter speaking to you from the 17th century. We have the same, we, leaders, pastors, we have the same sins to kill and the same graces to be enlivened and strengthened as our people have. We have greater works than they to do and greater difficulties to overcome and no less necessity is laid upon us. And therefore we have need to be warned and wakened as well as they. Alas, even in our hearts as well as in our hearers, there is an averseness to God, a strangeness to him, unreasonable and almost unruly passions. In us there is, at the best, the remnants of pride, unbelief, self-seeking, hypocrisy, and all the most hateful, deadly sins. And doth it not then concern us to take heed? So the King James Version says, take heed over yourselves. Doth it not then concern us to take heed? Alas, how weak are those of us that seem strongest. How apt to stumble at a very straw. How small a matter will cast us down by enticing us to folly or kindling our passions and inordinate desires by perverting our judgments or abating our resolutions and cooling uh, cooling our zeal and dulling our diligence. Ministers are not only sons and daughters of Adam, but sinners against the grace of Christ as well as others. Those treacherous hearts will one time or other deceive you if you take not heed. Those sins that seem now to lie dead will revive. Your pride and worldliness and many a noxious vice will spring up 
that you thought had been weeded out by the roots. It is most necessary, therefore, that men and women of such infirmities should take heed to themselves and be careful in the dieting and usage of their souls. I don't know how that sits with you, uh, but I appreciate that. The, the Puritans had, and Baxter had, a very shrewd understanding of the human heart and, and a very clear anatomy of the dynamics of sin. And I appreciate the way that he acknowledges the reality that even in leaders, we're not above this. We're not somehow at some other level. We're not impervious to the workings of sin in our own heart. And because of our responsibilities and the weight of the work that is given to us, we need to keep watch over ourselves that we do not allow to flourish in our own hearts that which we're trying to beat back in the life of the people in our churches. Well, that was just one. Here's the second. Are you ready? If you will venture on the great undertakings of the ministry, if you will lead on the troops of Christ against the face of Satan and his followers, if you will engage yourselves against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, if you undertake to rescue captive sinners and to fetch people out of the devil's paws, do not think that a heedless, careless minister is fit for so great a work as this. If you will venture into the midst of the enemies and bear the burden and heat of the day, take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves, because the tempter will make his first or sharpest onset upon you. He knows what a route he may make among the rest if the leaders fall before their eyes. Take heed, therefore, brethren, for the enemy hath a special eye upon you. You shall have his most subtle insinuations and incessant solicitations and violent assaults. As wise and learned as you are, take heed to yourselves, lest he overwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you, and a nimbler disputant. He can transform himself into an angel of light to deceive. He will get within you, and trip up your heels before you are aware he will play the juggler with you, undiscerned, and cheat you of your faith or innocency, and you shall not know that you have lost it. No, he will make you believe it is multiplied or increased when it is lost. You shall see neither hook nor line, much less the subtle angler himself, while he is offering you his bait. And his baits shall be so fitted to your temper and disposition that he will be sure to find advantages within you and make your own principles and inclinations to betray you. And whenever he ruineth you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. Oh, what a conquest will he think he hath got 
if he can make a minister lazy and unfaithful, if he can tempt a minister into covetousness or scandal. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Keep watch over all the flock. So Baxter here has a a basic point to make. He says, when we are commanded to take heed to all the flock, it is plainly implied that the flocks must be no greater than we are capable of overseeing or taking heed of. Right? That particular churches should be no greater or ministers no fewer than may consist of a taking heed to all. If it be the pastoral work to oversee and take heed to all the flock, then sure, there must be such a proportion of pastors assigned to each flock or such a number of souls in the care of each pastor as they are able to take heed to as is here required. Right? Okay? If you're going to pastor all the flock, well, you can't have too large a flock. Or you need more pastors. We should know every person that belongeth to our charge... For how can we take heed to them if we do not know them? Doth not a careful shepherd look after every individual sheep? And a good schoolmaster look to every individual scholar, both for instruction and correction. And a good physician look after every particular patient. If you're going to keep watch over all the flock, you need to know the flock individually. So would you like to know Baxter's secret? Here's here's what he did. Every year, he would invite every family into his parish, into his home, into his office, him and his assistant, and they would spend an hour with each family going through the catechism, in other words, sort of question and answer about the basics of the faith, testing them on their understanding of the knowledge of Christianity, asking them about the pastoral issues that they faced and the concerns that they have, and giving tailor-made pastoral advice and sending them on. That was his practice. And this is what he said about it. We spend Monday and Tuesday from morning to almost night in the work, taking about 15 or 16 families in a week, so that we may go through the whole parish, which hath above 800 families in a year. And I cannot say yet that one family hath refused to come to me, and I find more outward signs of success with most that come than of all my public preaching to them. Uh, Preaching is not enough. So Monday and Tuesday, and don't think, really, don't think he was any less busy than we are, or didn't feel any less busy. I mean, he's doing a lot of writing for a start. (laughs) Right, so so he would take these families. Now, now, I'm about to set you free to think about this, and boy, we have some thinking to do, because this is such a different context. Now, in 1650s England, yes, the, the Church of England has been established, but the parishes remain 
That instinct remains. And in the 17th century, people do not travel. Most common for people to stay in the same parish for all of their life. And of course, in that parish, guess how many churches there are to choose from? One. Now think about our own day. Think about the degree of choice. Think about the churn. Because here's the challenge for us, right? Who, who is your flock? When the people on a regular basis seem to come in the front door and then go out the back door. And, and the washing machine that is New Zealand church life that is, seems to be stuck in that agitation cycle in which, in which Christians churn if they go to church at all around different churches. Who... Who is your flock? And what is your parish? Right? Because this verse is still there in the scriptures. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. The value of the churches that we lead. So here are my questions for you to think about. In 21st century Aotearoa, New Zealand, right? How are you going to keep watch over yourselves? And how are you going to keep watch over all the flock? How did you get here? Did the Baptist NZ app have anything to do with it? Because that's where the gospel renewal stories shared by our faith communities are at. In the midst of more, Baptist NZ on App Store and Google Play.